out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the new wave band from the early 80s. It's going to be the one and only Classics Nouveau because I recently spoke to their lead singer and songwriter, who um, sells solo. He also went on to have an amazingly prolific solo career after the band came to a slight end, but they might be coming back. Who knows? You'll have to listen to this interview. So anyway, after several minutes of interest and but casual chat that we edit out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Sal... Tell us everything. Tell us now. Well, um, I, now I'm a tiny bit older than you, and so uh, the first time I think music really broke through, through through to me, it was a song which began with "I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you." And you probably never even heard that. Oh but God! It, yes, Arthur Brown. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as a little as a little child, you know. Um, Growing up in Hertfordshire, I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. Actually, Tony Blackburn used to play every morning on Radio 1. And uh, after Arthur's introduction, then Tony would always say, Are you, sir? And uh, it kind of went from there. So that was the, so the first album I bought was Arthur Brown. The second was actually Status Quo. Because they'd had pictures of Matchstick Man, which was one of the most amazing psychedelic songs. Yes. It kind of went from there, you know? Yeah, so you got the tail end of the 60s, so you would have sort of, did you pick up the kind of that moment, the 67 period of the, the Summer of Love with Sergeant Pepper, and then in London there was the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally. Did, did, were you kind of aware of those kind of changing kind of uh, youth cultures? Well, well, of course, I was a really young child, and so I think my father would... Uh, see that kind of stuff reported on the news of the world and talk about these disgusting hippies or something like that. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I'd quite, um, you know, I hadn't quite come into my own at that point. Yes. And did you, and were your parents or did kind of at all musical or quite influential in the arts? I just wondered if you'd come from a, a sort of a house that might have had opera, classical music, anything like that. No. Not, not at all. You didn't have an older brother or sister that turned you on to some exciting new well, sounds. Yes, I did have I I do have a sister a lot older than me and she used to be into the Everly brothers and Adam Faith, probably Cliff Richard, I'm not sure, and that kind of thing. And so uh, yes, I, I guess as a child I, I can sort of remember my older brother watching the Beatles uh, on TV. I think they might have played Sunday night the London Palladium or something like that. And so him sort of observing it. And also he joined the army and was posted to Germany. So when the hippie thing came along, he couldn't really be a hippie and have long hair and all that. No. Uh, but I bought some of those clothes because I guess it was a thing you do when you're young. But I, I didn't have the courage to wear them. So he borrowed them from me one time to go and see the doors in Jefferson Airplane at the Roundhouse. Oh, my goodness. That was so cool. Yeah, amazing. Yes, to see the Lizard King would have been amazing, wouldn't it? I think I think that's um, you can see that concert on YouTube a bit. I think that's where he does really? lots of. Wow. 
I think you can see lots of him sort of interacting with the camera in a rather groovy and um yes menacing way but yeah i think it was rosie boycott who went on to do something like spare rib the magazine i think she talked a lot about that and then it was this one of those documentaries and then you saw this bit of you know jim morrison on stage being i think it was one of those concerts in those days the band might just turn up sometime you know you didn't know not like you know like now or even a few decades ago where you know, it's like the support band would be on and off by eight o'clock and the main band was on at half eight and it's all over by 10. I think the doors came on really late. Like everyone was just thinking, it's nearly midnight, Jim. Come on, get on with it, you know. And well, you know, they say at Woodstock that by the time Jimi Hendrix played, nearly everybody was gone. Yes, I know it was four, four o'clock on a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the very first concert of my life was Led Zeppelin at the Royal Albert Hall. And so me and a friend from school, uh, we somehow bought our tickets, but we had no idea how to find the Royal Albert Hall or anything like that. And uh, so we're wandering the streets of London and we stopped some guy and said, do you know where the Albert Hall is? And he said, no, but I have a map. And so somehow or other we found our way there and we were way up in the gods. And back in those days, they didn't have any special, these sound things hanging down or anything. So it was really a big noise. But obviously it was exciting because we liked Zeppelin and uh, this was the first concert we'd ever been to. That was quite, that was also quite cool, wasn't it? So when it came to sort of the, the turn in the, the decade and we came into the 70s, were you aware of that kind of change or that shift when, you know, people like Jim Hen Jimi Hendrix died and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison had all sort of passed away in 1970s? So you would have been, actually, you'd, you'd have been quite young by then, wouldn't you? You weren't that. Oh, yeah, we were, we were pretty young at that point. Um, I mean, obviously, we could see on top of the pops who were the sweet and all these kinds of people. And um, once I started to learn the guitar, I was always listening out for interesting guitar players. And uh, you mentioned about Bowie, and when he first sort of, not so much obviously the Space Odyssey time, but a little bit later when he became Ziggy Stardust and Mick Ronson was very significant. Yes. So I noticed him. There was also a guitarist, um, yeah, there was a band, I don't, I, at some point I remember hearing Quiver, they were called. You know, the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver had a couple. Yes. And the guy who played guitar in that, Tim Renwick, his name was, he ended up, I think, playing with Pink Floyd, like he plays under the stage or something, so you don't see him, but you hear him doing a lot of the stuff Dave Gilmore couldn't really do at the same time. And so he was really good. Oh, and Richie Blackmore, of course, you know, with um, Purple. Yes, dear old Richie. But it's funny, because I did an interview with Tim Redwick, Redwick, kind of um, probably last year, because I sort of, I don't know why, but there was a David Bowie connection somewhere down the line. And I have a bit of an obsession with Bowie. So I thought, I must get hold of this guy. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll do an interview with you. So, you know, he was one of those people who played, I mean, his discography is, is extraordinary. And, and um, amazing. Yeah, really. But, I think he uh, played with Al Stewart, actually. I think that was one of the other ones. But he played with so many. He was a bit like Chris Bedding. It was like you look at his the amount of songs, his records he's played on, you think, okay, that's... Well, but even, um, you know, Jimmy Page before Zeppelin, he was everywhere, apparently. You know, in, in the States, 
Glenn Campbell was the guitarist on all the records, like when he was a teenager. And in the UK, it was Jimmy Page as a teenager who played on everybody's records. Yes, this is and true. He was he was right there. So yeah, so we don't we don't really we didn't. I guess as kids, we didn't appreciate that stuff. Just yesterday or the day before, I came across somehow on YouTube a video of a guy called Link Ray, and I guess he had a he was a guitarist who. He had some sort of instrumental hits in the 50s, so it's before our time, so we were not aware of it. But I saw it was a video of him playing in the 70s when obviously he was much older, and he was really good. And I looked up that a lot of guitarists say they would never have played rock music at all without Link Ray. And yes. So I said to one of my friends, it's funny, we didn't really know about him, but I guess we were just not that generation, you know? No. And also it's a bit tricky finding stuff out in, in that period because because I just remember you'd have to go to the library, you know, often to get records out of the library to borrow. And also my brother, who I've got an older brother who was seven years old, and he had one of those rock books that you would, you know, look at, you know, the hundred most you know important records. And finding information was quite tricky. It wasn't that sort of instant in those days. <laughs> um, and sort of digging down and finding, you know, obscure bits and pieces was often quite um, a bit challenging, really. But yeah, it's... It, it sort of made it interesting, you know, sort of, I would, I do remember sort of seeing, you know, Vel, the Velvet Underground being one of those important albums and had no idea. So I went and got it from the library and put it on and it was like Sunday morning. It was like, I did not expect Sunday morning. And then, you know, it changes a bit, doesn't it? But it was like, that's a bit unusual, but there's nothing, you know, nobody had spoke about this album particularly. So, um, yes, I would always go well, and try I, and do actually, um, I went to school in Stevenage and, uh, there was a store, Wellingham City Department Store, it used to have a big record section. And kids from my school used to steal records from there. And so a lot of these kinds of albums you mentioned, we were aware of, you know, the, the Velvet Underground. There was Quicksilver Messenger Service was a big uh, favorite. There was um, Captain Beefheart and all kinds of weird stuff that you would never ever hear, on, obviously, on Radio 1. No. Maybe if you might, you might John Peel might play some of it. But uh, generally speaking, you know, uh, it was it was called underground music in those days for a reason. It really was. Yes, it was probably in the bargain bin of the um, Woolies, wasn't it, really? The place that often was quite, I think, you know, I, I sort of remember people sort of shoplifting singles because it was, I don't know, a thing that people did in the 80s and 90s, I suppose. And they were yeah, actually, so they were weird. so cheap anyway. That was, was, they used <laughs> to leave them. They used to leave them out, didn't they? You know, at, at, <laughs> <laughs> to actually leave them out so people could walk off with them is kind of weird. But, I think uh, the staff, I think the staff had had it. But then by by kind of um, seventy five, obviously you you'd gone into a heavy metal period with Richie Blackmore and Led Zeppelin, probably Deep Purple as well. Um, yes, obviously. But then then did you did you sort of pick up on the punk scene that was starting to sort of flourish and yeah, change? Yeah. Well. Um... We, we sort of somewhat leapfrogged over the glam thing there because, um, yeah, I mean, I can certainly remember seeing Sweet and people on top of the pops, but, uh, and you, you were a Bowie kid and a lot of my friends were very Bowie or Brian Ferry. I was just watching, uh, um, I was just watching a documentary yesterday on Brian Ferry and Roxy music and it always takes me back because I think Virginia Plain is one of the most amazing records of that era and also sparks this town ain't big enough yes and 
uh, one of my friends from school actually played with Sparks at that time. He was very young. He was a little bit older than me. And uh, so we certainly had an awareness of that early, mid-70s uh, type of thing. Yes. Um, well, we had Top of the Pops, which was quite a, a moment, wasn't it? Quite a ritual. And seeing Sparks on Top right, of the Pops, yeah. definitely. Yeah, you could always see, you could always see people on there, anybody that was kind of successful that you knew. Yes. And who was your friend who played with Sparks? He played bass with him. His name's Martin Gordon. And so he played on the Kimono My House album and then they kicked him out. Um, and then he went on to play with the... He never had quite such big success again. He played with um, Radio Stars was the name of one of the bands. He was with Jet was the name of another one. So they had sort of a cult following, but... Um, there he was with Sparks, with a big clunky Rickenbacker, as that was the thing at the time. Yes. And uh, he, I, th I think he was only about 18, so he was kind of lucky to uh, get in there. And, and how was your guitar playing going in, in during the mid-70s? Uh, well, I think when you mentioned the, the punk thing, I think that certainly was a bit of an influence, because the first time I was signed up, and uh, that was with the, the band I had before Classics, it was called The News, and we were signed up to GTO Records, who used to have um, Donna Summer, and uh, I, uh, actually there was a group, weird group they had called Fox uh, at the time. You remember them in the 70s? Nusha no. Fox, it was, uh, it was it was kind of a weird uh, female thing. Well, go, go look them up, they're interesting. Uh, I think Fox. It, might be Fox, it might be Fox with two X's, and they had they had a string of hits, and she was just very weird. I, I like the weird ones, you know, like Lena Lovitch. I liked, you know. Yes, Lucky Number. We thought that exactly, was amazing. Lucky Number, like I said, Sparks. You know, anything that uh, that was really weird kind of caught my attention. Um, and so when we were first signed up, it was it was a weird time because punk was new, and so as as young kids, we were excited by punk, but the record companies wanted the kind of track pop stuff that would be more like the suite or whatever so we released one single so one side sat was produced by barry blue and it sounded more like a typical kind of pop song of the time and then the the b-side you mentioned b-sides had me bashing away the heavy guitar and the the guy that ran the record company i don't think he understood it whatsoever and uh, but he didn't mind because it was on the b-side because he had discovered gary glitter and the bay city rollers and people like that you know Right. That's where his head was at. Yes, he was looking for the next big thing, wasn't he? Really. So. Um, anyway, so they, uh, so they, after, I mean, almost before the first single was released, they decided to dump us. Although they'd given us loads of money, so uh, we had good equipment by that point, you know. Um, and so I was a bit sort of disillusioned because we'd actually been in the studio with two or three producers, and it was my first experience in a real professional studio you know and uh to be signed up uh, we were signed up the typical deal at that time if it was any kind of decent deal at all was uh you'd, you'd have five five years you're supposed to be five years five albums something like that right so to just uh do one single and then be dumped it was very discouraging so i thought i'm not going to do this again so i'll go and join somebody else's band and so there was Melody Maker that used to have pages of classified ads, was where everybody found their bands. So by this point, everything was punk. And so 
the first band I went and auditioned with, the guitarist had been in the police. He'd been in like the, a very early version of the police. And somehow I knew him. I must have um, been at gigs or something on the punk scene. And then the second one I went to was X-Ray Specs. Right. And she had decided that she uh, didn't want to do it anymore. And so it put them in a bad position because she wrote all the songs and everything. So they were looking for somebody else that could do that. And um, so half the band liked me best and half them liked somebody else best. And so the drummer that first night said to me, I want to form a band with you. Uh, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to form a band, but somehow he sort of cajoled me into it. And that's how Classics Nouveau started. Crikey. That's, and that was about 78, 79? 79 it was, yeah. It was the moment, isn't it? So punk had had its kind of heyday, really, hadn't it? And um, was on the, on the way down in a lot of ways. I mean, it quickly, any scene gets quite sort of um, poor, really, doesn't it? It's, well, it does, it, in, it does in England. Things move very fast in England, not over here in the States, uh, because anybody who's ever been anything is, is kind of still appreciated. <laughs> I don't know if it's partly because over here they had all the radio stations, you know, they always had uh, the so-called FM stations playing all the weird stuff and they had and albums and they had, I guess, any kind of style of music. You could find it in America, but in England you could not because uh, there was only really Radio 1. Yes. And uh, I don't quite know when they started those local stations. But also, I think, because England is so small, news ca carries fast, you know? And so to an American, the idea that we would say uh, Norfolk is only like two or two and a half hours away from London, or you can drive to Birmingham or Manchester or Liverpool or even Glasgow, you know, in, in less than a day, to them, that's shocking because they drive 14, 16 hours or more across the country to visit relatives and so on. Yes, I know. Well, I've, I've, I sort of, having done this show for quite a while, I realised that there's several things that finishes a lot of British bands off. And um, and normally it's, you know, it's the typical kind of five-year period, you know, the get-together, you know, they get the single. This is like the 80s, a little bit of a sweeping statement, but, you know, you get the single, it gets played on John Peel, the John Peel session, all good, get the, you know, the first album and, you know, get a little transit van. And because this country is so small and every town and city has an alternative indie night, you know, people could just kind of quickly get a little circuit around the country and, and you know, every place had that kind of venue, didn't it, on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday normally. Of things course, going really well. And then, too, you know? and then the second album, yeah, a bit tricky, third album, yeah. And then, but yes, that's the thing. So there's a slight lack of money, kind of tension. And if any band ever does America from the UK, it's always like, oh, we went to America and came back and split up. And it was like, but why? And they always <laughs> say, it just finishes you off. You just, you know, it just, it's just too much. You know, we were all emotionally wrecked by the end of it it just you know we just didn't want to just didn't want to do it anymore and then talking to american bands it's like oh yeah we went to see a band and we had to drive eight hours to go to the next you know to the next city and it's like my goodness i can remember not going to a gig you know because it was like 40 minute drive it's like oh i felt really embarrassed actually well there you go. well that's a good point because uh, over here most people live in places where they don't have gigs and so um, therefore, there was not the kind of same tradition of, of live music that we had 
in the UK. Yes. Like in the in the early days, well, really not throughout the whole life of classics and above. We had fans from Leeds and York and different places who would just travel everywhere we went. <laughs> and uh, even in America, you know, when we come to America, they'd come over and go to all the gigs in Boston and New York and wherever. And so it's just a completely different culture. Yes, absolutely. And also, again, this one thing I slightly got this feeling was that American bands sort of morph and change a lot more because someone was like, well, someone just had to go, you know, went to college, went to university, got a job somewhere else. So that was the end of that band. But then someone else came in and then that morphed into that band. And that. Whereas in the UK, it's like, this is, the say, the four or five of us. We're in this really tense situation and then it all just finishes. So there isn't that kind of morphing kind of feeling because I think people, perhaps when you're young and you're in this country with that mindset, you just expect that you're going to stay there. Whereas in America, it might be the case is like, well, you're going to have to leave one day and you can do the band for 18 months, but then you're going to be going somewhere else probably. So don't don't sweat it so much. So I do notice that sometimes people seem to be a lot more fluid. And also the other things, God, sorry to go on about it, but often have to have a job as well as being in the band. Whereas in the UK in the 80s, it was like, no, we're just in the band claiming social security, unemployment, and that was it, you know, so we could just do the band. And then, you know, it was a slightly different well, that's vibe. True. That's true. The other thing is because it's so big here, um, the way that band, it takes a lot longer for bands to make it and uh, so they tend to survive longer because first of all if they don't live near a big city as most people do not they first of all have to compete to get known in the big city wherever that is Chicago, New York, wherever Seattle then they have to kind of compete to get known through their state and then it goes to the neighboring states and then if they're very, very lucky that by the time that's taken several years and they might somehow get noticed nationally because to tour nationally in the States takes so long. Yes. And so they have, they really, usually they have to do it for years. There was a, there was a little bit of a um, change maybe in the punk era where they had like CBGBs and uh, one or two places like that. And so if they could make it to those clubs and they could get spotted. But typically, for most of the time, there isn't one special place. You know, there's not a top of the pops, and there's, there's not really a London like in England where everything's happening. And so it's kind of regional. Yes, and um, and also I think we, I did notice, and being a fan in the '80s, I mean, it didn't take much for you know John Peel to play somebody from America, and then you know, and you just go, oh wow, that's fantastic. We're going to love them already, you know. And then they come over and they go, wow. You know, everyone loves this in the UK. You know, we're such, you know, like exotic stars. So I think there is a little bit of um, excitement that happens as well with people from different countries, you know, especially when you... Um... Well, so, uh, some of the Americans, especially like the Black Blues guys, uh, Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters and people like that. I mean, apparently, you know, it's a little bit before your time or mine, but apparently they were huge in England, but they were not in America because of the uh, segregation. Yes, this is true. So, so for Clapton and all those people, uh, they were heroes. Um, but in America, they, nobody really knew about them. Yeah, it was the Rolling Stones. There's a lovely clip of Brian Jones, isn't it, introducing somebody, one of the blues players, and, um, yes, getting very excited because it was like, God, this is our hero. And um, people going, yes, but you're the Rolling Stones. They're like, oh, forget about us. Just look at this guy. He's the, he's the real – this is why we're playing music. And basically we've also – 
copied a lot of his styles. Almost remember. the only one who's still around now is Buddy Guy from Chicago. Oh, yes, with his... Um... And he you know, spotted guitars and things like that. Um, but he tends to say that he, he was not really the, the most notorious or maybe not the best, but he's the longest lived surviving. <laughs> and yes. so eventually attention came to him. He would have to, yeah, no, I mean, Jimi Hendrix is the other sort of example of somebody who came to the UK with uh, Chaz Chandler and um, got his uh, experience together and um, became quite big and then went to do Monterey Pop Festival. So, yes, it's um, we we built them up and then sold them back to America. It's a it's a lovely story, really. And then he went played at Woodstock in front of, you know, four o'clock in the morning, which is which is what um, which is an amazing story, really. 4 a.m. on a Monday. But look, then, so as your band went from um, the news to to classics, I mean, 79, Thatcher gets in, and then we have, you know, which is kind of a major, I think it's a major political moment in our in our life in the 80s. And then we had the, 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 the Falkland War, and then we had the minor strike, and then we had this Greenham Common. So how was it for, the, for you and the band kind of during this kind of great tra transition from the 70s into the 80s? Well, I think it was really our era because it's different when you're growing up in an era. Like you said, you're a, a, a Bowie kid and the guys in my band were very much Bowie kids. Like the bass player, Mick, when he first walked in for an audition, I think he had pink hair and a leopard skin uh, you know, jacket and tight pants. Uh, and it was all because of Bowie, probably makeup as well, actually. Yes. And friends of ours who were around, like Boy George and people like that, Steve Strange, uh, they, of course, had started this whole new scene, really because of Bowie, I would say. If Bowie hadn't done it, I'm not sure that any of them would have been going around with all the makeup and the hair and the clothes and whatever. And those were the places that we used to just go out to. And so our first album, was called Night People, and it was uh, it was based on a song that I'd written, which was based on that, because I found it really amusing. You know, Boy George used to live in a squat off of Oxford Street, and once the clubs would close about two o'clock in the morning, they'd all be down Trafalgar Square waiting for a night bus home, and it really amused me the irony of the a uh, couple of hours when they're in the club. They're peacocks, you know, yes. <laughs> like royalty. They could be anything they want. They're in a dream. And then they have to get the night bus home to go to and live in a squat with no electricity. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was really what our lives was like. Like you said, uh, um, you know, it was, it was a very changing era. And I actually had a car. I mean, I'm not sure if it were, you know, used to break down all the time and everything. So I don't quite know how I had the money to have a car, but I had a car. So that kind of put me one level above other people because I could give George a lift to a party or something. Uh, or, and also, I didn't get beaten up. And so Mick, the bass player I mentioned to you with the pink hair, he lived in Wimbledon and he used to often get beaten up. And people would say to me, you don't get beaten up? Said, well, I've got a car, so they're not going to be able to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as, as the Gary Newman song had. Um, cars, but yeah, did did that first album come together relatively smoothly? You know, as a as a band and as a unit, was it was it because they'd been in and you'd also been in the band as well? Was it the fact that they'd also been in X Ray Specs or several of them that made it a lot more fluid, being able to um, create the sound? 
Uh, well, the, the band I had before the news, uh, the manager, he was big into Queen. And so everything, everything that Queen did, he thought we should do that. And so I think, so, so two of the influences there, um, which kind of stuck around as one, the sort of glam aspect of it, even though this was kind of like the tail end of the punk era, we were a bit more sort of drawn towards the more glam type, probably because the, the Bowie thing more than Queen, really. Um, and the other thing was that probably especially Queen, really, more than Bowie, they experimented a lot, you know, they didn't have one sound, so they could have a hard rock sound and then they could have Bohemian Rhapsody. I didn't like everything that they did, but uh, no. they, they, they certainly didn't stick to just one particular thing where the punks obviously did. And um, so I think our X-ray Specs guys, they were already aspiring to um, something more adventurous than just the straightforward punk thing that you can, you know, you've heard, you've heard one, you've heard them all. Uh, one of the guys, one of our founding members of Classics, he'd been to school with the guys in Japan. And uh, so they came to our first gig. I remember them sitting around there. And they were in the biz, they were in the, they, I guess they were at the point of transitioning also because their first couple of albums they did in Germany were kind of like trying to be a sort of heavy metal sort of band. Um, I think maybe from an American point of view, they'd be looked on more like what they call the hair bands, you know? Yes. <laughs> to, to us in England, we, we wouldn't consider maybe real heavy metal. We, we like the dirty stuff that they had, you know, all the pretty sort of boys with all the hair and that trying to play hard guitars and all that. So that's what Japan were like at the start. But by 79, they were transitioning to more of a synthy kind of band. And uh, David, of course, had started to sing more like Brian Ferry at that point. Yes. Uh, so it was a good sort of transitional moment, really. And did you have a, did you get or have a good manager at this stage? Yes. Uh, when I had the news, and it's interesting you asked that question, because I mentioned we were signed to GTO, and I had actually been in the same company with the same demo six months earlier on my own, and they threw me out. And then I got a manager who came back six months later and we got a deal. So wow. it's very important, very important to have a good manager. And this particular guy, he, uh, he was kind of like the, the toy boy for the wife of a shipping tycoon or something. And so he had all these Rolls Royces and whatever. He had some uh, rehearsal studios where people like the Queen, people like uh, the police came and practiced. Uh, they had clothes designed for Queen. Um, ACDC was another band that came and practiced there. I guess that, that might be how I knew a lot of these people, really. Well, yes, and, absolutely. And, and obviously, so, you were you part of that sort of the whole Ritz? Was it the Ritz scene? Blitz. With, um, Blitz. Blitz. That's the yeah. Word. Blitz was uh, well. Blitz was one of them. Uh, yeah, it was that was Steve Strange and George used to be the uh, cloakroom guy there. <laughs> oh, and Marilyn was Marilyn part of that yeah, scene? Yeah, Marilyn as well? was part of the scene. There was Marilyn. Um, there was the people that became Hazy Fantasy. That was Jeremy. And there was a few others. I mean, when if you read some of those books, you'll hear them talking about all those people. And I always find it a bit strange when I, if I read any of those books, because suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about him, you know? Yes. And there was uh, another club at that time called, is it Alice in Wonderland? Was that a little bit later? Or 
No, I don't know that one. There was one called Studio, Studio 21 was a regular one that we used to go to. That was uh, on the corner of Oxford Street. Yes. But, uh, yeah, they were... Uh, our manager, when I, when I went and auditioned from, for X-Ray Specs and Classics Nouveau was born, the X-Ray Specs manager became the manager of Classics Nouveau. And he managed me for pretty much all of my um, mainstream career. And so, of course, he knew, yeah, I mean, he knew the guys in the record companies and whatever, and so it definitely was a help. I think, was it Simon Napier-Bell? Was he the manager of um, Japan? Yes, yes. That's Simon. He was Poland, I think, before that, didn't he? I actually, early on, very early on, when I was very young, I spoke to him on the phone. I guess maybe there was a... Um, Maybe there was a, a, an advert in Melody Maker or something of a manager looking for bands. So somehow I got to speak to him on the phone, but I don't remember meeting him. No. I get another guy that I had as a manager was a guy who actually ended up managing Boy George and Culture Club. And he managed me for about six months, I think, maybe after the news. Yes. Um, and with your first album, it's got a very striking cover. Who's, whose idea was this with the, the gold watch? Oh, um, well, that, that was really the design department at EMI, and they, uh, I, I think they were a bit bewildered by this whole so-called new romantic scene, because I remember, they obviously, they didn't know about the clubs and things that we went to, and uh, I remember when we had those, those pictures taken for that album, and the guy saying, you've got very heavy makeup on you. <laughs> <laughs> And I was kind of like, oh, oh, have I? Oh, well. <laughs> it's just what you do when you're that age at that time. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, so So this was, I know, though it says Liberty, this is part of EMI Records, is it? Yes, Liberty had been bought out by EMI. And uh, I, actually, I think it was, it was actually a label of United Artists, and then United Artists got bought out by EMI, so... By the time we started making records, it was already EMI. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because I, I did an interview with a, the bass player with the Farmers Boys, who were very different to you. But he was saying that they, they were signed to EMI on the same day as Kajagoogoo. So there was a, like a group picture of them together on the steps of Abbey Road or somewhere, or the offices, which I thought was a, yes. been a, yeah. quite, a, stri- a quite a striking contrast between two bands. Well, I think when we came in, it was like the Vapors were, they, they'd had Turning Japanese as their hit, although I don't think they had any others. I'm trying to think, I mean, basically they had all the big old bands, you know, so they had Queen and they had um, Pink Floyd, uh, Tina Turner at that time, was, was with it. and Bowie as well, actually, he was EMI at that time, because when Let's Dance came out on that album, uh, I mean, my, my guys in my band were ecstatic because... Uh, they played it all the time on our tour buses and whatever. Yes, the Sirius uh, Moonlight tour. Well, we exciting. used to get all the records free, so that was that was good. You know, I had a huge collection of vinyl records. <laughs> <laughs> the first time you get free records, it just feels like Christmas Day, doesn't it? Really, let's face it. You just well, not, think... only, not only free records, but we used to get in free to all the gigs as well because when you play at the clubs in London, you know everybody knows you. And so it was wonderful, you know. I could go on the Hammersmith Odeon any time, see Kraftwerk or whoever, and that was it. 
Yes. So then, because obviously, you know, everybody gets very excited in that creative moment. What was it? What was the atmosphere like sort of with the the follow up album? You know, because that's doesn't often have much time to regroup and then sort of get back to the the writing and recording process. What was what was it like for the band at this stage? Um, well, I think uh, there was always quite a bit of pressure because of being with EMI to try and come up with a hit. Uh, I don't think we appreciated as much at the, at the time how much it's really about money and profit because as, as stupid kids as you are, you just love music and you almost think it's like a benevolent art and the job of a record company is to make great music available to kids like we were. Yes. Um, so if you don't get big enough hits, then you're in trouble. So um, off of the first album, we'd had a song called Guilty that kind of nudged. It was almost in the top 40. And then the uh, electricians at Top of the Pops went on strike for six weeks. So we couldn't get the exposure and it, it, it dipped. Uh, Duran Duran were signed to EMI a little bit after us and their single came out a few weeks before and there wasn't any electrician strike so theirs went all the way up there and ours uh, bombed and so they kept wanting us to have an, another hit with our second album. I think the, the first album was probably much more influenced by the, the touring that we were doing and the clubs and our following was mostly a lot of punks really at the start. Yes. Uh, partly maybe because of X-ray specs and partly because they also were looking for what the next thing was going to be. Um, so we played a lot of songs that worked well live, so they tended to be kind of aggressive and um, uh, everything seemed to be played at a ridiculous speed. Uh, I suppose that was the thing at the time, but we, we, we thought it was fine. Uh, so by the second album, I think we were wanting to get more into being more musical and uh, experimenting more maybe in the studio. And uh, then we ended up getting a hit with Is It A Dream, which had started off as an instrumental and somehow or other, we thought, oh yeah, there's potential for something more with that. But the way it really became a hit was there used to be a Saturday night show at the time with Chris Tarrant and Lenny Henry. Right. I don't remember what it was called. It might have been called Saturday Night or Saturday Night Live or something of that nature. <laughs> something catchy. And uh, they insisted that, every, that it should be live and spontaneous. And the rules at that time were that everybody that performed on TV had to perform, uh, I guess you call it lip sync these days, yes. <laughs> perform with a tape. Um, but there's something to do with the Musicians Union that they insisted it was done that way. Um, but for this particular show, they uh, wanted at least the singer to sing live. And uh, so they wanted Slade, and for some reason Noddy refused to sing live. And so we said, well, we'll do it. And so we did it, and I sang live, and the next week it was in the top 40. Bingo. This is yeah. good. This is good. Because you had a, the single for the first single was Never Again. The day's time raised. So that that went in at number forty-four, didn't it? Something like that, yeah. But that one somehow didn't quite uh, go. And uh, with is it a dream? You know, I went on and did all this screaming, growling stuff that I used to do, and 
the public liked it, I guess. Yes. <laughs> or, or maybe maybe they just thought they hadn't seen anything quite like this before, which would be very much how I was as a child seeing uh, like you know Arthur Brown and Led Zeppelin on TV the first time. It was like, wow, I've never seen or heard anything like that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. There were some incredible front singers, men and women, during that period, actually. I mean, there were some, you know, great stage performers. And I think playing live always helped, you know, because, you know, people kind of managed to sort of craft that sort of uh, stage, you know, managed to sort of work the stage more than... Um... Probably a good point, because we didn't really have things like Milli Vanilli yet, you know, that came a bit later on or Backstreet Boys and those sort, all those kinds of things that were put together. So, um, yeah. I, and did I, you find, I mean, I didn't know if you, you saw it last Christmas, but on Disney, the Disney Channel, they had the the Beatles Let It Be kind of eight-hour special of them recording that album. I just wondered if you'd seen that and was at all kind of in, interested or inspired or related to your own creative process of having to go go in and, create a new album from almost scratch again uh well i certainly saw the movie when it first came out and uh, since you mentioned the beatles uh, i told you as a child i was kind of my older brother would be watching them on tv and so i listened to those weird things like the magical mystery tour and sergeant pepper i mean funnily enough at my school they started using that for music lessons it wasn't actually for us, it was for the older kids, but we'd be kind of outside the door, you know, so how yes. come you know, they're playing good music for them and we have all these stupid, you know, dirty old town in the songbooks and silly stuff like that. Uh, so I, I certainly listened to the Beatles and my favourite song of theirs was I'm the Walrus. And I can just remember listening, I want to say with headphones, but I'm not sure if we even had headphones at the time or just one piece, you know, one earpiece. And just finding it so amazing, everything that was going on, you know, you got all these voices and you got the cellos and I just thought it was so creative. So that probably to this day, really, that's always been the inspiration to me, how you put all those different things together. Yes. I think a, lot it, a lot of it was really the genius of George Martin, because he being a classical guy, he knew how to arrange all the different instruments. Yes, there was there was there was a lot going there. Well, it was interesting because I had an old brother who was seven years older and than me, and um, you know, we didn't have a lot of records in the house during the early the mid seventies. But he brought in Sergeant Pepper and also um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, and I remember sort of being consuming these two records with such enthusiasm and and just being amazed, you know, as you sort of worked your way through you know like the you know one and two sides of the Beatles but four sides of Elton John and you know so many of those songs were incredible and um yeah Sergeant Pepper there was one on B side or second side called Good Morning which I always found was just the lyrics were just mesmerizing I just love that narrative and the story so um yeah, that that did have a big effect. And also we watched those films didn't we? There wasn't a much on telly at that stage so Watching those Beatles films was quite oh, sort of yeah. magical. Well, when, when the when the Magical Mystery Tour uh, aired, I believe it was uh, Boxing Day or something. Yeah, know. it was something really strange, and it was very odd, and everyone was like, don't well, know. So with my whole family would be sitting watching, you know, because you didn't have many channels then, so you just watch really? what's on. So my old man would have thought it was ridiculous and disgusting, whatever, and I, I was probably a bit too young to appreciate, uh, you know, the the true value of it. But nevertheless, it'd be interesting, you know. 
yeah. uh, over here in the States, I believe they refused to show it because they thought it was too weird. And <laughs> so it didn't get shown for a lot of many years later. Um, but now we've got YouTube. It's amazing that you can find anything. You mentioned be early on, you mentioned actually Janice Joplin, and I watched some kind of a documentary where she was recording with Big Brother Summertime, I think maybe it was, from Cheap Thrills album. And that was pretty amazing because they had all these little intricate guitar parts they did. Um, and it was recorded totally live. They're just sitting there. Some some people do that in um, in the biggest studios, even today. You know, my friend Nick Beggs, you mentioned Kajagoogoo earlier. Yes. And he just did something with him playing the Chapman stick and with an orchestra in Abbey Road. And I just saw a couple of clips. I told him I thought it was amazing. And it looked like he's using the big studio that the Beatles used to use. So it could happen. Um, but personally, I don't think I've ever live recorded any albums or anything. No, no. I remember, I think it was the Black Sabbath who went, they played so much live. And then when they went to do the album, I think they just banged it out in one afternoon and went, well, actually, that's all. <laughs> we know this. There's no point doing it again. We we know the material so well. So there you go, the first Black Sabbath. But actually, Sabbath. it's very, very difficult um, to reproduce in the studio what you do live. And I think that was one of the biggest problems uh, with Classics Nouveau was that we started out very much a live band in this post-punk era and we'd been playing together on the road for 18 months or so before we ever recorded anything and during the time it was going we went to about 30 countries and toured and so we just loved playing live and it was a very exciting live and we really never could reproduce that in the studio yes frustrating just didn't know how Tricky. You never found the producer to sort of manage to... In no, I think, um, again, EMI, uh, I don't think they really were that bothered because maybe they partly they didn't understand it and there was always somebody selling more records than us and so it was a higher priority for them. Yes. There's a lot of people that work in these kind of record companies, that they're there for this kind of, you, you know, almost to be touched by the glory, really. They want to bask, bask in the kind of sunlight of whoever's... So they loved it when Tina Turner or Cliff Richard was doing something because it gave them these kind of bragging rights, I suppose. But the more kind of left field, like one of the bands that was on EMI at that time, same as us, was the Gang of Four. And to be honest, I don't really know anything they played, but I just know they were around and they were very, very left field. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, the, the people in the company just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to, to those kind of bands. And so it would have taken somebody who'd be a real fan to think, well, who would be the right producer for, um, you know, this kind of act? I mean, my friend uh, BP used to be the drummer in Classics. I don't remember him ever mentioning it at the time, but in more recent years, he, he mentioned me that his neighbor was Steve Lillywhite. And wow. I said, well, I wish Steve Lillywhite had produced one of our albums, you know? I mean, he did a good job with you too, didn't he? Yes. I just I just don't know why nobody at the time ever suggested something somebody like that really. Um but hey. What was so so eighty three, which is kind of an interesting period, because obviously that new romantic 
world had sort of been around for a while. But then 83 was also, for me, a massive year because that was the year of the Smiths. And then indie pop becomes really, you know, such a thing for sort of five years. What was it like for you bringing your third album out, Secret? Was that... um, because you've well, been together for maybe... You have to bear in mind that at the time an album comes out, it has to have been recorded and planned and written a long time before. So it may have been an 83 release, but it wasn't an 83 recording. And so the time that we were working on that was long before the Smiths and those sort of bands. So the kind of bands that were really succeeding at that moment were more like the Thompson Twins, you know? Yes. And... Uh, it was very much, I, I kind of call it plastic pop, the electronic sort of plastic pop. Um, to me, the sort of sound of the Tom, maybe Howard Jones was around by then. And also, was the Trevor Horn, that Trevor Horn production sound, was that yes, beginning to yes. filter through to everybody from ABC uh, to yeah. Frank? Oh, yeah, very much, because I remember being, Radio 1 used to have a show on a Friday night, I think it was, called Radio 1 Round Table. Yes. Where celebrities would review the new releases. So one time I was on there with Trevor Horn and with the guy that was uh, the, the leader of Foreigner, I think Mick Jones, I think his name was the leader of Foreigner. And uh, so Is It a Dream must have just come out because Trevor Horn said to me, is that a synth snare on there or is that a real snare and it was a real snare um but it's always kind of stuck with me because i used to be on shows sometimes like mike reed on a saturday morning with frankie goes to hollywood or tears for fears and uh so you're right that very kind of perfect production was really in at that moment yes well i think um that abc album was huge really and suddenly you know, but then we had Dire Straits. And then on the other side, there was, I think his name is Robin Miller, who produced and recorded Sade. So you had that kind of smooth yes. kind of jazz soul sound that was coming out as well. And and the sort of the rise of, I suppose, Thatcher's youth and, and the yuppie. And so there was a sort of, you know, there was Phil Collins and then there was Simply Red. I can't quite remember. Oh, that yeah. might be a bit more in the decade but there, suddenly yeah, that soundtrack yeah. becomes quite well, popular well, no, you, i think i think you've honed in on something there because i can remember at the time i think of course cds were brand new so not everybody had cds then and so people in their car who were more yuppie-ish they would have die straits and they might have sade they would have the police um and uh, i'm not sure one of the others you mentioned kind of resonated with me but the, so that was not really what we wanted to do you know we didn't identify with this idea that uh, all the stockbrokers should have our cds you know yes well i think you also had spandau ballet and duran duran so that was really pushed and the well the... that was that, that, that was more teen bot really you know because all the of course all the young girls screamed at duran and that was really the the key to their pop and you mentioned kajagoogoo because I, I met them very early on before because the, they were signed to EMI before they were released, uh, released anything. And uh, they were really jazzers, you know, they loved Frank Zappa and things like that, except for Lamar, you know, but the actual band, they were, they were, yes. they were really musos. And um, so then when they did the single of Too Shy, and I remember them showing it to me uh, when it was first printed, you know, all excited, and it had all their pictures on with their names and everything and I said this looks like the Bay City Rollers 
And I was completely puzzled because that was not what they thought they were. But obviously, that's what the record company <laughs> thought they were. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was definitely, we, we, we were too ugly for that sort of thing. So, um, I, uh, but I think I appreciated the really, the, the other thing that was around at that time, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned Phil Collins. He was the other one I was thinking of that all the, you know, the sort of slightly older women love his music. Um, but Peter Gabriel was doing the opposite because he was really experimenting with sounds and styles that had not really been heard before, that all this world music and everything. So when it was coming to that third album, there was two producers we had to choose from where we wanted. So one of them was the guy that worked with Peter Gabriel and he did Shock the Monkey and those kinds of things. And I thought that was great. And then there was a guy called Alex Sadkin who'd done the Thompson Twins. And so we were, he was American. And um, yeah, so we, we had it all sorted out with the Peter Gabriel guy. We were gonna go down to, I think he lived somewhere like Devon or Cornwall, and we were gonna go down to his studio and record. And then just when that was supposedly all sorted out, the other guy came on the phone, Alex Adkin, and said he wanted to do it. And so um, I guess we just went with a more electronic-y choice. And he was an amazing producer. He had been the house engineer for Island Records in the Bahamas. So he had recorded Grace Jones and uh, anybody basically who was on Island Records at that and time. And Bob Marley. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of big stars who, um, I mean, even the likes of McCartney and people like that would be going out to that studio. Yes. And uh, so... I learned a lot from him because he he knew everything, you know, tech, technique wise, he was years ahead of me. And so it's taken me many years to kind of catch up with what he was talking about and what he was hearing and doing. Yes. Um, and sadly, he died and he sadly died in 87. Yes, yes, that's right. He went on to produce a bit of Duran Duran and then he was gone. Um, he did produce that foreigner one. I, I want to know what love is was one of his. We loved that song, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so what happened was we were about, uh, I don't know, maybe six weeks or something into the recording and the guy from EMI came to the studio looking very sheepish and he said, I've got to talk to you. And so me and Alex went into a room and he said, you've already spent the whole budget for this album. And Alex said to him, well, you didn't give me a budget and if you did, I wouldn't have agreed to do it. And so by the time the album was ready, uh, they said, well, all, you, all your promotional budget is already gone, and so we're not going to promote it. And so that was the end, and then uh, they dumped us immediately, almost. <laughs> and that was the end of the band. Wow. That is, that is quite... Was that an awkward... Did you feel nervous or angry at that conversation? I think I was stupid. I didn't appreciate, like I said to you, you know, uh, we never thought it was about money and profit. We just thought we're trying to make the best, you know, good music. We're trying to make the best music we can. And we're still like that today. Um, and so it kind of, I don't think I appreciated the implications, the idea that they would just dump us after they spent all that money. But then it's EMI, you know, we would have probably been better off like, you know, Depeche Mode with Newt Records and Gary Newman was with, I forget what it was, one of those little labels as well. Yes. Banquet, I think, maybe. And so really, we would have been much better off with a small label, but then they don't tend to give you the money that the big ones do. 
No. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. So then did you have a conversation with the band, you know, the, the four of you to say, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? Um, well, because EMI gave us money, uh, we used to get £50 a week. So we were employed. <laughs> now, of course, £50 a week was not very much even back then, but no, I don't know what, I don't know what the equivalent would be today. But anyway, they, they gave us £50 a week. And as we were touring most of the time, we were taken care of. And so we were fine. So the minute that, uh, you know, we didn't have EMI anymore, we weren't going to be able to pay our rent. And so a couple of band members were immediately gone. So one of them became a roadie for some of the bands who were around at the time. The, the Psychedelic Furs, I think, was a band we came to America with, first of all, and stayed here. And then one of my guitarists at the time was from Finland, so he just went back to Finland. And so we didn't really have a band anymore. I got some other guys to come in just to sort of complete the tours that we still had because we still had a lot of foreign bookings like for the next couple of years. So there was a a form of classics in Vogue for a little bit after that, but it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't, yes. it wasn't the, the band. And then, and then once that you'd, you'd done your obligation, did you then sort of become the solo artist for the next few decades? Well, um, what happened was that uh, th this kind of comes back to Kajagugu and Nick's Beggs, really, because they were living just down the road from me. I lived in Kilburn, they lived in Cricklewood. And so we just used to hang out all the time. And at that time, he was a born again Christian. And I, I wasn't. And um, but anyway, he started taking me to some of these kind of uh, Bible things and Christian meetings. And uh, I'd been in the music business long enough by that point. Obviously, as you said, we had three albums and 230 countries. So I knew it was not really fulfilling for me. So to make a long story short, we uh, ended up going on this trip to Italy to a place called San Damiano. And uh, I decided, let's write a song. And so he, he wasn't that much into it because I guess Kajagugu was still riding high at that time. So I did it on my own. And the rest is history, as I say, it became a hit. And so next thing I was getting offers <clears throat> for me without Classics Nouveau. Yes. And, and obviously the, the, the style had changed because um, I was a little bit older, not much, of course, but a little bit older. And so I was becoming a bit more mellow. And, and, and plus, I think in England, because you mentioned about how quickly things change, and so it's almost like whatever thing you're in at this moment, within six months or certainly 12 months, you, you will have expected to have moved on and totally change your image. You know, Spandau came out as new romantics wearing tartan kilts and things. And then within <laughs> a few true. months, they, they were white, you know, blue eyed soul boys. Yes. And uh, so I guess I kind of wanted to get away from the whole classics nouveau kind of scary evil image. And uh, so I was, uh, uh, I was more interested. I, I, I guess it, it was really a bit more sort of clean cut, really, than I had been before. Is the is the way that it was. But also, when I had a hit with San Damiano, the reality is 
it was such a different kind of sound that suddenly old ladies like my music, you know, where they, they never would have done before. So I was, I was a bit in more of a Boy George category, you know, he did come a comedian, all the grannies loved him. And so, <laughs> so yes. from, from being more kind of leftish and all these kind of dirty punk fans that, that had followed classics around, all of a sudden people were calling me the new Cliff Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because your discography is amazing. You've literally done a solo album every year, haven't you, for decades? Uh, well, I've, 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 I've had breaks, but I, I've done a lot of albums. And, uh, you know, I had a, I've, I've worked with other artists. I had a period in Italy with a, a huge band there called the Rockets, who uh, they're like a household name and they sold a million and a half albums and I toured with them and kind of come back to them at different times and uh, I produced some other artists so that I ended up working with some younger up and comings and things. Yes. And so so yeah. with, because with your solo albums, are they all of a devotional, spiritual basis? I'm I'm sort of um I listened to a few of them and then I've sort of been looking at your 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 titles. So I'm getting the impression that you you know, they're they're all of um yes, your spiritual kind of path. Yeah, well I had a I had a transition uh from where I was to that. So when I did the San Damiano song, all I knew was the mainstream of music, because that's where I'd been. And then one day I got a call from some guy said uh, we're a Christian record company and we wondered if you'd be interested in doing anything. Well, I didn't. I said I didn't know there was such a thing as a Christian record company. Yes. I, I said, well, who records with you? And they said Amy Grant. So I don't think I'd heard of Amy Grant at the time. Obviously, she went on to have a couple of hits, but um, I, I, I was not very impressed. And then as time went by and I sort of learned a bit more about these kind of people they have. And so I think it was strange for America, uh, strange for England, because there's not much of a Christian scene in England. Um, in reality, at the time I left, I've lived 23 years in America now. And at the time I left, I believe it was 8% church going in England. And... Uh, you know, only probably one or two percent of evangelical Christians who are the ones who do the records. Whereas in the States, you know, um, it was some huge percentage, you know, it's something I, 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 I believe it could have been as much as like 70 percent church going in the States. And Southern Baptists who had all the Christian record labels and all those labels, they, they're like, apart from Catholics, after Catholics, they're, they're the largest group and so especially with these country artists you know like Dolly Parton and, and uh, you know people like that they don't mind at all you know doing Christian songs because yes. their idea of church is different to ours in England because in church typically you're either an Anglican or a Catholic um, you know there's a few that do something else but not many whereas in the States you're more likely to be a Southern Baptist or a Pentecostal or something like that and so therefore church for you is what Elvis grew up with <laughs> or Al Green might be your pastor. Or something. Yes. So it's a very different perception. And so over the years, you've had people like Toby Mack 
will have a number, number one album in the States in Billboard, and he's a Christian singer, you know, a Christian artist, kind of doing Christian dance music, and there's a lot of others who are less known. And even these sort of um, hard rock people, like um, they used to have these bands called things like Petra and Striper. Right. And they would... Uh, yes. Huge tours, they'd throw Bibles into the audience, and uh, people were just really into it. Um, so it's very different, you know, the, the, the thing in America as far as faith stuff goes, or if you like spiritual stuff. So yeah. in, England, in England, when I decided I wanted to, um, you know, do more faith type stuff, I had to kind of, in a way, step away from the mainstream and go with the, the smaller kind of Christian labels. And so that's how I ended up doing that. Yeah. After a while. Uh, you know, we got, you got to a point where you can do everything independently anyway, like these days where records and CDs eventually were phased out. And so when everything's online, you can put online whatever you want. And so the need for a record label had kind of disappeared after a while. Um, I know there are some of these labels like Cherry Red Records in the UK keep reissuing everything from before. Yes, they do. And so you've got all the classic stuff and even some of my early stuff is reissued. Um, to, for yeah. Most. So that was interesting what you said of that cause, and you mentioned Elvis because I remember one night thinking in this on this show thinking, I must get somebody who once sung with Elvis or played with Elvis. And I sort of tracked down this singer called Terry. I can't remember his surname, but he was in one of those Christian gospel choirs that Elvis had for these Vegas shows. And then, you know, he sort of had this amazing body of work and then did a bit with Elvis in Vegas and then went on just to go back with the family to do, you know, that that sort of career because, you know, he, you know, Elvis wasn't playing that much in Vegas a lot of the time, probably six months of the year. And they just thought, well, we'll we want to, um, yes, keep it going, really. Don't want to sort of have six months off. So, um, yeah, it was interesting him talking about that, that sort of... Um, well, they say after his shows that Elvis would just gather around with his guys and they'd sing their gospel songs and hymns and whatever, all that sort of stuff. Yes. And then when you get people like, when he was still like Prince, maybe going up to receive his Grammy and, you know, I want to thank God and all. I know from England, we find that we think all of that was kind of fake because it just, we couldn't imagine it, but, but really it's true. You know, there's not really that much of a barrier between uh, Christian gospel music here in the States and any other kind of music. It's just, in fact, it's one of the categories that's one, I think it's like the third biggest selling kind of music after Second is country, and then the third would be a kind of gospel inspirational, however they class it, you know? Yes, I went to see Prince when he was doing his probably Love Sexy tour, and actually he did an awful lot of um, praising God, actually, and um, everyone loved it because, you know, he was Prince and he was amazing, so... Well, well Prince released uh, When Doves Cry came out in England on the... Um, what's the name of that label? The uh... Was it Warner? No, no, it was uh, it was actually a smaller label. Uh, they may have been bought out by Warner, but I, I forget the name of it. Now, they had Def Leppard and people like that. It was based in Wilson. The name will come back to me. They had Billy Ocean as well. Anyway, they 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 made an offer to me for my San Damiano. And I remember the guy at the time saying, he said, the two best records that are out at the moment is When Doves Cry and San Damiano. That was afterwards, you know, when I, I, I declined. He said, you said no to us because we're not a big label, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I got more money out of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> MCA. 
not not that it's about the money, but it's the fact that they they've got the money to promote you. You know. Yes, absolutely. But but then I mean, when because because up to sort of oh three oh four, you were on different labels. Was is Axe in capitals? Is that your own label? Was that another label that you were on at this stage? Well, that, that, yeah, that's, that's really more or less my own. You know, I've got an organization in the States. I moved to the States in 99. So everything that came out post-99 was usually more independent, really. I, 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 I'd, I'd done three albums with a Christian label in the UK, but I think they were all before I left the UK. And uh, so by that point, I'd started uh, doing it independently. Yes. And then... Interestingly, so how did you cope with this the, the the wonderful world, well, rather wonderful time of lockdown? Did you um, how did that sort of affect your sort of creative moment in in the world? Uh, well, I, I've got into video production uh, over the years, and mainly because we were always very visual. You know, back in the days of classics, we used to have like uh, one of the best light shows that was out there with the technology at the time and the two best light rock light guys in London. One of them went with you too, but he'd done some stuff with us first and uh, we had the other one. And so once video kind of became a thing, I always wanted people making videos for my music and they always wanted an arm and a leg for doing it and would take forever. So eventually I learned to do it myself. So during the lockdown, I made I made a video every day. So I made a little kind of uh, chat video, and usually there'd be a song in the end, and that took up my whole day. So that's, I'd already, I mean, I pretty much stopped uh, performing in public by that point anyway, and so I wasn't losing gigs or anything like that because of um, the shutdown, you know? Yes. So for me, it was probably not as bad as I used to on TV, watch them doing American Idol and things like that, where they couldn't, they couldn't bring anybody together. Everybody had to do their, their auditions from home and their, their winning performances from home. So that was kind of funny. Yes, that was a in bit the, tricky. In England, of course, you had X Factor, the equivalent of American Idol. So then, did you la last year bring out the single Inside Out? Was this a, a remake from, from your first album for classics? Well, one of the things that's happened in recent years um, that's come as a surprise to us is all these Facebook groups, these fan pages and that. Yes. <laughs> and so we'd see uh, all these people posting amazing stuff. You know, they're posting tickets from old gigs we did in Leeds and posters and they find rare versions of pressings in Japan and you name it. I mean, photographs of... Uh, they. They've even got photographs of the news, and I don't know how they find them because, uh, you know, we only had one single and didn't do anything. So they're so, you know, they're so dedicated that after a while you start thinking, well, you know, this really had an impact on people's lives. Yes. We'd forgotten about it. We'd forgotten about it for 30 years, 35 years, and then they're still, you know, uh, they're still as passionate as they ever were. And so <laughs> all these kind of young unwashed punks that used to follow us around in the day. Um, so now they're 50 year old people who probably have regular jobs and things, but they're still passionate about music. And uh, 
you know, I've talked to a bunch of people like this. I was talking to Mike Reed one day uh, for an interview, and I said, you know, we just never imagined back in the day that years in the future anybody would want to know about this thing, you know, because the idea that band people would still be playing rock and roll at 70 years old and that, like the Stones or Paul McCartney, 80 years old, it never occurred to us because nobody had done it. Yes. And so we always thought music is something you just do when you're in your 20s, and after that you just kind of get old and do what old, old people do. So the idea that any, A, anybody would be interested, B, they'd still be doing it, or they'd be reforming, or there'd be a fan base for it, it was just bewildering, really, to us. And so, like I said, we're, you know, we were kind of touched by the fact this really meant so much to so many people for so long so oh, oh they would post the release dates you know like this is the anniversary that night people was released or something like okay we don't know that i don't know how <laughs> they get that information but we would not know and i mean if we did it wouldn't have been anything particular to us and then um so after this had been going on for a couple of years uh, one day i contact the guys and i said you know maybe we should kind of reward them and give them a surprise so why don't we record something? And so this was the song from our first album we decided to do. And uh, we said, well, let's do it how it would sound today if we did it today in the light of you know who we are and what we know in the technology. And so that's what we did. And so there was a song, there was the video, and uh, we thought that'd be it. But uh, unfortunately, you know, it sort of, triggered a whole new thing because especially two, two of us have lived in America a long time now so we were not really aware that in the UK all the old fogies like us were getting back together and doing tours and things yes and so uh, we hadn't thought that there was going to be a demand for this um, but right away they started saying new material you know new songs and so we were in a bit of a panic for a while because it was like, well, how could you do new classics and old songs in the you know twenty twenties? Like this was the music of the eighties, and uh, so we cannot get our mindset back then. I cannot write songs like I used to write them when I was twenty. Um, and so we were struggling over this for a little while. You know, it's like anybody got any songs? Anybody got any new romantic <laughs> pieces or something? And then. I got this kind of revelation one day and sort of said, well, we don't have to try and be as we were back then. We can be as we are now. And so if we were a band today, because we're not, we haven't been together all this time and we weren't planning to go out and play together. If we were today, what would we want to sound like? And it'd be different. It's quite different, you know, to what we were doing in the 80s. And... Uh, so with that kind of liberation of not having to try and sound like we were, I suddenly had this inspiration, wrote a whole bunch of songs for the band. And so when I say the band, it's obviously the new classics band because it's a rock band. I haven't been playing with a rock band for a long time. You know, as you said, I've been doing more inspirational yeah. music and I've been uh, directing, writing for choirs and things. And so the idea of playing, of doing songs for a rock band with guitars and heavy drums and all that, it was quite appealing because, like I said to you, <laughs> my first band was Led Zeppelin. And so it's always been in there somewhere. 
And it turns out our drummer from Classic Speepy, I didn't know this, I don't remember him ever saying it back in the day, but he said his inspiration for playing the drums was John Bonham. And the guitarist Gary told us more recently, again, I'd never heard this, he said his inspiration for playing the guitar was Hendrix. And so there's a, and the other funny thing about that is, of course, today it's quite cool to be into those things. In the 80s, it wasn't because it was yes. guitars were out and synths are in. But today it's like, well, you can be proud that uh, those were your influences. So uh, we just kind of started uh, recording at a distance some of these new songs and uh, everybody putting in their influences. And so it's ended up sounding a bit more like a kind of uh, more of a heavy guitar rock band with that sort of, you know, electronic slight robotic influence in there. And so we put out a single this year, earlier this year. We always do it on one of these anniversaries that the fans tell us are coming up. So the previous year we did Inside Outside, but they weren't happy with that because that was a remake. And so they wanted something new. So this year we put out something new. And to our surprise, it, it was kind of ecstatically received. And uh, not only that, but uh, Mike Reed has a chart called the uh, Heritage Chart with all the old fogies in. And so it turned out it was in the Heritage Chart and it got to number 10. Blimey, yeah. this is amazing. This is great. So. Yeah. So did did you all record your bits and then send them to you and then you mixed it together? Or was it Mick? Yeah, yeah. Well the um the drummer lives in America, lives in North Carolina. So he came down to Florida to my studio. So I recorded him, but the others had to record their own parts and send them over to me. And uh, they were all put together that way. Fantastic. Oh, it's amazing how many people I talk to at the moment who are having the same experience. Like this afternoon there was a guy called Luke Haynes, who was in various bands, but he's collaborating with Peter Buck from R.E.M. And obviously they're in different countries and Peter does the music, he does the lyrics, they sort of, you know, do the bit of mixing, engineering, and voila, there's a new album. And that's, yeah, well, uh, you know. Well, there are some, you know, some friends of mine and people that I know uh, from back in the day who were online doing things. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, maybe I might do something with them one day. In fact, one day I was contacted by some band in Sweden. They sound just like Erasia. And they, they said, oh, we're huge fans. Would you consider singing on one of our songs for our next album? So I went and I looked them up and they're a big deal. They're well known in Sweden. They've had hits there. And uh, Classics Nouveau back in the day, Sweden was one of our first countries where we were really big and had hits in that. And so it's kind of funny to think that uh, you know, some band, they obviously must be a bit younger than us. And so some band, they were influenced by us at that time. And then to come back and say, you know, would you do something with us today? Which again, we'd have to do from a distance because I'm not going to go over to Sweden, so. No, but yes, yeah, I think um, I think your first album, Night People, was number 11 in Sweden, got to number 11. So. <laughs> well, you know more than I do. <laughs> so that was- that You're was well so, informed, that, very well informed. That was 40 yeah. years ago. So yes, it, these people will be like, yes, let's, let's get it back. I know it's amazing actually that, um, well, I've been amazed how many books and films have been made of quite obscure artists and bands and albums. And you're thinking, gosh, I didn't realize there's such a market, but obviously there is, you know, people have been... Well, there's a, there's a thing now that I only just discovered where 
you know, somebody who's, I guess they have some kind of a podcast or something, and they will just play a song that somebody requests by some old band or something they've never heard before, and then they have a whole kind of reaction to it. And that's interesting because I was thinking of doing that um, with our new album with somebody because there's a guy here in the States who's an enormous fan and is a, he's a little bit of a TV personality. He used to be a radio DJ. So he's interviewed Barbara Streisand and all kinds of, you know, huge stars, but he's, he's always remained a, a classics fan. So I said, all right, well, when our new album's finished, I'll give you a little preview, but I want to, on video, record your reactions to it Excellent. So we, can, so we can get an idea of, you know, how the fans are going to react, because I think they're going to be surprised because it doesn't sound like the old classics nouveau. Um, but based on uh, the single that we put out, everybody loves it the way that it sounds today. You know, that it's uh, it's not it's contemporary and it's not trying to reproduce some bygone age. Yes. And, uh, so does that mean that next year you're going to bring out not just another single, but a whole album's worth of material? Yes. That's the plan. Hopefully, hopefully it will appear by May, which is say our, our anniversary of a couple of our albums, I guess. And so we're actually about two thirds of it is finished right now. And so we've got three more songs to finish. So it's, it seems at this moment like a realistic target to have it out by the spring. And will you put it out on Bandcamp, or have you also got your label that you'll put it out on as well and have a vinyl copy? Um, probably not vinyl. I know the fans would love that. But the thing about it is that um, because two of us live in the States and, you know, just simply kind of sending stuff out, the, the cost of it is probably prohibitive. Um, although I've thought of talking to, uh, you know, one or two labels about it. But we'll see, you know, when it's finished, we've just got to decide what we're really going to do with it. And it partly it depends when it is. Um, but, but I mean, for sure, we'll put it online, you know, it's going to be on Spotify and iTunes and all that. Yes. But uh, maybe, you know, maybe it will have a physical release as well. Are you tempted to put any live dates together next summer? Well, we've been asked, you know, some people have said festivals and there's some clubs in England that are asking for it, but uh, people always say to me, never say never. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's, let's yes. just, I've got a very comfortable life here in Florida and I'm quite happy as I am. <laughs> what I'll say about that. Yes, well, and... Um... The, fact, the fact that Paul McCartney and Paul Simon people still want to go around in their 80s, you know, touring around the place, then... Uh, that's for them, but um, I, I don't quite see it for myself. But like I say, never say never. No, maybe, absolutely. Maybe, maybe somebody would make an offer that I couldn't refuse. Yes, it's it's just, um, I think that nowadays most people are sort of, they're kind of keen, but there's a lot more paperwork than there used to be. So I think that's likely having to get your head around um, forms and more expense, but that's one of those things. If there was, um, if you could have to told yourself or your 16-year-old self some words of wisdom or, you know, advice or any top, top tips, is there anything that you would have thought, oh, yes, I would have, would have been handy to have known that when I was 16, even if your 16-year-old self might have ignored it, it, it? You know, it's always kind of curious what you might have said. Well, yeah, I, uh, I would have liked to have said learn to be good. Because, uh, again, the difference between England and America is here. People study. You know, they, um, 
they really take education very, very seriously. I don't know if it's because in England everything's free, you know, we call it free because it's taxes. And so what you don't pay for, you don't value. And so, um, I mean, my memories, I, I don't know how it was for you in Norfolk, but uh, my memories in Hertfordshire was just kind of messing around through most of secondary school. And uh, when I was, uh, I think when I was about 12, I decided I wanted to, you know, be in the rock music business, but I hadn't learned anything yet. I hadn't learned to play the guitar <laughs> or anything. And so it was only at 14, the, they got a guitar teacher at school and I took one lesson from him playing classical guitar or flamenco and that was it. It's like, all right, I understand guitar now, so I'm gonna do my own thing. Whereas here in the States, you know, you would learn, probably you'd learn oboe or clarinet or something and you'd learn piano and then you'd learn guitar as well. And you go to college and you do a music degree and you do all that stuff before you have a dream of going out and performing for anybody. But everybody I knew, you know, people like Boy George and all that, it was like, well, in your head, you're a star first, and then you go and do it, and then maybe you become a star. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I've never known from England very many people. Actually, to be honest, I once interviewed Rick Wakeman on one of my radio shows I used to do. And so, of course, he was somebody that went to the Royal College of Music, and he told me, when he was 19, he was playing Space Oddity and Morning is Broken and all these kinds of things. And because, of course, he knew he knew music. He studied music. And only him yes. and Keith Emerson, I guess, were almost the only people around at the time. There was one other, which who would be Nicky Hopkins, who, you know, mostly went to America and did sessions with people as well as the Stones. Um, but I didn't know many people that were really, you know, really knew how to play music. I think they picked it up as they started their career, didn't they, really? Well, well, occasionally you get somebody who's just so talented, they, they just pick it up and they're amazing. But not too many people are like that. And uh, also you kind of have um, maybe a few people, if their dads love jazz or something, see, I'm thinking of the more jazzy to people like, for instance, Richard Burgess, you know, who played drums at... Uh, I, I knew him over the years, coming and going, and he had landscape for a little bit, and they were a jazz group, basically, you know. But that's unusual. Yes. Um, yesterday I saw some guy watch a thing on YouTube, and it was an American, and he said, this is the most difficult pop song ever written. And he showed you some song I'd never heard of, but it, I guess it was a hit in America. And it changed keys like almost every part of the song. It kept changing keys and the kind of things. He said, "I could, I, I could never learn that song. I always had to follow a chart." But they, <laughs> they admire that kind of thing, whereas we admired, you know, Johnny Rotten and Boy George. So that, so that's the big difference. So, getting back to your question, I haven't lost it. Of my sixteen-year-old self, I would like to have been able to say, "Well, learn to do something well." You know, learn to sing well, learn to... I actually didn't have singing lessons until um, I think maybe after San Damiano. And that was because when I started working with these choirs and I was thinking, wow, they're really good singers and they're, they're <laughs> the choir directors can write down music and stuff. I better start learning some of this stuff. So I was very late to start learning, trying to learn how to be good. So I just feel if I'd have learned it much earlier, and, and I suspect that most people, you know, of our generation and, you know, those a little before and those a little after probably say the same kind of thing. When you get older, 
you realize it would have been easier if I knew what I was doing. <laughs> yes, though I did once do an interview with a producer engineer called Mark Saunders, and he said that it was kind of interesting because because he had that experience in America where he was I don't know he was working with I think it was Cindy Lauper, and there was a guitarist who had all the kind of LA ta tattoos and everything. But then at some time, and I think, oh, he'd been working with Marilyn Manson, but then could pick up an acoustic guitar and do amazing bluegrass acoustic, you know, you know, like totally different genre that you would expect the, you know, an L.A. guitar rock god would have done. And he said, yeah, well, you know, we do all that at school or college and we learn all those theories, whereas in the U.K., people don't know but then mark said that one of the problems was that when you got a bit stuck in the studio to do something he said try that and they go no you can't do that that won't work because they kind of knew too much whereas in england they go oh, okay i'll try that not knowing that the fact that perhaps that's that's not quite right but you might create something quite oh well actually that that sounds quite good so it's kind of interesting that sometimes you need to have a bit of a, a lack of um talent or skill and just kind of yeah. not knowing it's, the theory not knowing the theory to say no we shouldn't you shouldn't do that you know because that's it's very that. true actually one time uh, i was in a men's clothing store in iowa browsing around and some boy came up to me and when i opened my mouth he obviously knew i was british and he said uh, i like the british music he said uh, the the english music is more original he said it comes over here and we sanitize it and send it back and uh of course, it's true in part because they know how to do that. They they do, you know. They could they could analyze. It. I mean, even with uh, our we, earlier, I talked about our guilty song video. It had it was kind of like the first new romantic video, and it had all these people in it from the clubs who were you know dressed to the nines. So in America, EMI saw it, and at the time they had Kim Carnes, Betty Davis eyes. So they flew over our producer, our video director from England, said, we want that. So he made almost the same video for Betty Davis Eyes with Kim Carnes. So they had actors dressed up as new romantics <laughs> and we had the original people. <laughs> so yes. That's, that's kind of the way it works, you know. And so, of course, she had a big number one record and we didn't. So they, <laughs> they tend to do better with, yes. uh, with, that, with that kind of thing. But... Uh, Definitely uh, over the years, I've appreciated really learning music, but you're right. You, you do have to keep that originality, which is more common uh, in America. I mean, sometimes you get, we talked about Prince and he could play any instrument and clearly he was original as well. But a lot of times they're just more kind of obvious. They were, in one of my very early bands when I was a teenager, a girl joined who knew how to play classical piano and she kept telling us what we should not do and could not do. And so she drove me nuts. I paid no attention whatsoever. <laughs> um, but then some of the, some of the greats. I guess we've got in English music we had two extremes because clearly Freddie Mercury knew music properly that he could uh, you know play piano well and do all the vocal arrangements and all that. But then obviously Lennon McCartney didn't. But they had George Martin. Yes. So uh, yeah, I, I do think it probably is the the best thing about. English music that generally speaking we don't know anything and so we just do it and so we're kind of learning as we go along with the fans yeah so it's interesting I know it's it's a kind of creativity is such a curious thing isn't it because I know quite a few people have spoke about it and and kind of where it comes from the source and 
and we've often talked about different people who who sometimes their early work is like wow that's so beautiful and it's kind of got this purity and then some of their latter work can be a little bit not so joyful but perhaps I don't know as as, as they've got older they become a little bit more bitter and angry with the world and their music and their and what they're doing isn't quite the fluid i'm thinking of morrissey basically the smiths <laughs> so it's one, that time, kind of... one time i was in uh, nashville and at the grand old opry it said morrissey and so i was kind of surprised that he should be uh playing there you know i don't know if they think in this country that he's uh you know country music or something <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i just don't know um but uh they uh they they don't tend to be so uh into well obviously they're not into originality that much they don't care if it's original or not um but they're not so much into the, the categories in one sense they are because they give everything names yes. but uh my sense of growing up in england and, and being in the music business in england was that you always have to be the new thing and the kids there was there was one time um I'm thinking it probably was the early 90s, around the time Jamira Kwai was around, you know. And I remember taking a bus of uh, teenagers from my church to the seaside and driving a, a min, minibus. Are they called minibuses in England? Yes. Minibus, minivan, we say. And I remembered that all the music they were playing in the back was within six months old. Like, there's nothing older than six months. I think that's probably changed somewhat in these days because of the internet and all that, that a lot of people get to hear oldies. But until the internet you know, came to do that, I think we always just wanted the music of our generation. And so it was just whatever was in at that time. And so whatever was old, we kind of scorned because it was our parents' music. Mm -hmm. And when the new stuff came along, we'd always say, oh, well, it wasn't as good as what we had. Yes, this is, <laughs> like this is... people say today about EDM and all that, and all that, oh, it's not like the real music, is it? You know, back in the day when we played, really played right. instruments, you know? And it's interesting because I know I used to love, you know, obviously David Bowie and also Lemmy from Motorhead. And they're both the same age. They're born the same year. And they'd always say, you know, it was like their musical influence was Little Richard you know, Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, Eddie Cochran, people like that. And I remember Lemmy saying, well, you can only mm. be 16 once. And that music at that moment is is the music that you're really going to be, you know, embedded with deep in your soul. You're going to know it so well. And you just can't be that person again. And I think that's kind of true. You, you, you know, that's the music that you kind of grew up with. And it's the one that, you know, you... And also at that stage, I don't know if it's still true, but you wanted to discover your own moment, your own band, your own singer. You know, that was incredibly important. And you felt so excited and you felt a little bit annoyed if other people knew it and then started becoming fans as well. So you kind of wanted to be part of a group, but not want to be a part of a group. It's complicated when you're 16, but you get the gist and, and you know, but you've you've got your band and and they're yours and and that's something else. And you can listen to other things throughout your life and think yeah I like it but you're still you're not going to be 16 or 18 again are you it's that that kind of magic well, age really that's because your music is the soundtrack of your life and so clearly those teenage years are maybe the most important of all because uh, you know that's when uh, you become who you're going to be that's when the hormones kick in and everything that's when you become independent for the first time all that being said independent you know 
here in the States, they're, they're often not independent at all until they're over 25, which is another difference, but definitely in England. Uh, like I left school at 16. My oldest brother left school at 15 and joined the army because you could then. Yes. And uh, so for us, um, at 18, 19, you're kind of your own person. And so it is, it is very, very, very important for sure. And so you, you can never replace that. You can enjoy, like you said, lots of music, lots of songs that happen at different points of your life. I'm sure people remember what they danced to on their wedding day and that kind of thing. But your, your kind of first awakening is... Because actually, uh, my mother, you know, right at the beginning, you asked me about the music that influenced me. Now, my mother, um, one day when I got home from school, she had discovered Motown. And uh, it was because... Before Radio 1, they used to have pirate stations. There was, uh, I think there was, well, Radio Luxembourg was, I think, the first one. But then they had Caroline, Radio, wasn't it? Radio London. That was where I knew Tony Blackburn from, actually, first of all. And uh, so one day I come home from school and my mother says, uh, oh, look, I found a station with all this, you know, strange music. And it was the Four Tops and Stevie Wonder and all of that, you know, and so I, I don't know that it directly influenced me in the sense that I wasn't really old enough yet to um, be aware of what it was and the difference. Um, but once Radio One started, like again, it was Tony Blackburn. He was playing the Move, Flowers in the Rain when Radio One began, and so I can remember. I told you about listening to the War Russ. I, I can remember listening to the Kinks, you know. Yes. Uh, when we were at Clacton on Sea, and I'm just a child with my little earpiece, like listening to my transistor radio. And so, definitely, it's a sort of awakening. So, if I ever hear on Spotify, actually, I've got some old lists of 60 songs and 70 songs that I occasionally listen to, and they're only going to be the ones that meant something to me when I was a child growing up. And so, it doesn't matter that they're not known over, like, nobody ever here knows who the move is, for instance. Even the kinks are on it, barely known. You know, people know you really got me and they know Lola and they don't know anything in between. But they don't know Waterloo Sunset, for instance. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yes. But um, it's interesting because my mum used to listen to radio too and it was like people like Jimmy Young in the afternoon. But then that's why I, I've all got a, an absolute love of the Carpenters and Burt Bacharach. And I love those lyrics. I still love those lyrics. And I thought, well, if I love those those bands, when I was about 10 or whatever, five, of course I was going to like Joy Division and the Smiths later on in life because they're all songs about relationships and heartache and alienation and, you know, slight despair. So, you know, there is a kind of a thread, but I think they they, they do sort of slip into your mind, don't they? Like your your moment with I'm the Walrus and, you know. Well, I think that the Carpenters, to be honest, was good music. And so even I can, even now, if I, I hear some Carpenters, you know, uh, Yesterday No More or something, is that what Yes. Was? You know, and uh, so I just think that that is quality music, whereas the kind of thing we had in England at the time, Sweet and all that, I don't think, you know, Mud, I don't think that's quality music whatsoever, Bay City Rollers, you know. Um, I mean, I appreciate it. it kind of meant something to somebody who was the right age at that time maybe girls, um, but uh, I, th I think there's a difference, you know, I think really Carpenter's music can last forever. I mean, in a sense, it's like Dire Straits, you know, I didn't really like Dire Straits, 
but you can appreciate he's a very good guitarist and the Sultans of Swing for sure. I mean, maybe even I Want My MTV or whatever that one was, you know. I mean, there were, there were, some, there were some good songs of their kind and so they can last forever. Yesterday I saw a little bit of an um, interview with Angus Young. Oh, yes. Uh, I guess they were asking him about Highway to Hell and things like that. And I've, I've never really followed uh, ACDC, but I can appreciate they've obviously had some songs and a style which really has meant a whole lot to a lot of people and is among the best of its genre, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I was, you know... <laughs> I, my brother also had a, a Deep Purple album and Black Sabbath, and I think that was my heavy metal go-to bands. And then there was Motorhead, which you know, and that that was kind of it, really. I thought, well, don't really need any more heavy metal, do I? Um, yes. Well, for, well, for me, definitely uh, Zeppelin. I mean, I, I did like Purple as well, but especially Zeppelin. And over the years, I, my my friend Nick Beggs, he's he's toured sometimes with John. Um, what's his name? The bass player. Oh, uh, John Paul. John Paul Jones, John Paul Jones. <laughs> yes. And so I went and met him one time and I said to him, you know, my, my first ever gig was Led Zeppelin at the Royal Albert Hall. And he said to me, was it the time when there was flowers at the front or not flowers at the front? And I thought, how strange, you know, I mean, I, I can't remember all the places I've played now. And so he can visualize whether there was flowers or not flowers in the front. Um, <laughs> And then sometime after that, I saw on TV the, the concert they did at the O2. Some, I don't know if it was in 2012 or something. That's somewhere. right, yes, for some record producer, wasn't it, or label owner. And uh, I thought that was amazing. I mean, I was really impressed because as a kid, seeing Led Zeppelin, obviously I didn't know anything that went into getting their sounds. Uh, I didn't even probably know what was the difference between a bass and a lead guitar. But what, now that I know how music is produced, and when I heard them, and, and particularly John Paul Jones, because he used to play keyboards and organ with them. And so when they're doing, they were doing certain songs, they, they, they never brought in any uh, session musicians or anything like that. They did it all with the four of them. And so when they're doing songs like that, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever that song is, and it's on the recording it's all cellos and whatever and he played it all on the keyboards including bass pedals and it didn't sound like anything was missing and I amazing thought, well, this, this guy is an amazing musician wow that is incredible. He, he, he's never appreciated because anybody that thinks of you know zeppelin thinks of the other three and never him but he's probably the, was the best musician out of all of them <laughs> yes well it's interesting yes i think he's probably the one but it's like john entwistle in the who with his bass lines wasn't it he also yeah. had something quite unique about his playing style so. he, he used to be a trumpet player or something first and so he said he he always played his bass lines like he would have been playing the trumpets <laughs> it's yes, a different that's approach that's, in, that's interesting isn't it so, yeah. but with with the uh, purple now i've got a channel here now which has a lot of rock docs on them and many times they come from years ago but i've never seen them before so there's one on purple and there was another one actually on, just on blackmore where they had i guess rainbow in it as well and uh the thing about blackmore is he was a very original guitarist um but apparently he was terrible to get along with and so they just couldn't stand him you know they did these amazing couple of albums that kind of changed heavy metal music and everything 
Um, but then they had to get rid of him or, or he had to go in the end because they just couldn't stand him. Yes, I know there's often little comments. I I do follow them a little bit and there's little comments about, it's better now that someone's not in the band. <laughs> I think you, well, afterwards, you know. they went on to have all these kind of, you know, amazingly technical kind of session type guys. Um, but I don't think any of them could ever be as good because they just don't have that spark of originality. No, know? but it's nice that Ian Gillen was... Um, he was in the Jesus Christ Superstar, wasn't he? He was the vocalist on one of those classic songs. Um, he might, I don't know, I don't think he was Jesus. He might have been Judas. But he 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 launches, you know, his early years is on the sort of the stage. And you can hear that, you know, so well when he's in Purple as well, that kind of, that kind of musical theatre, I suppose. Yeah, he, he certainly has an amazing voice and amazing range. He, he was not one of my personal favourites. I did like Plant in the early days, you know, because he was original and essentially sounded like a girl, really. Uh, to me, him and Janis Joplin, you mentioned earlier, I mean, obviously she was the first original kind of rock female vocalist. And so every, pretty much everyone else who came afterwards just tried to copy her. So these days it's nothing unusual. Everybody goes on the talent show and sings Peace of My Heart. Yes, but, but at the time, nobody had ever heard anybody sing it like that. <laughs> so I, know. I, love the, I love the fact that um, Richie now is is kind of got this you know duo with his partner Candace, I think, and you know he wears a little pixie hat and plays this little kind of folksy music, which is all very. It reminds me of sort of a bit of Spinal Tap, you know, when they do that kind of folk thing at um, Stone for Stonehenge. So he brings out these little folky albums, which I think is quite sweet. And he has a little well, cape on. I, I saw somewhere, I don't know if it was on YouTube or, or Facebook or something recently, that uh, it was either Hatfield in the North or Gong were coming back. And that was amazing because those are the kind of bands when I was really young, we used to go to their gigs. And so there would be, I think maybe Gong was a little bit bigger at the time because people like Peel or maybe Bob Harris would play their stuff and they were on the Virgin label. And so you get these hippies just basically, you know, going all over the place. Wishbone Ash actually was another one. I saw them and, I, you know, they, they had, the, they were kind of original with this dual, you know, yes. star thing going on. That's right. Um, and then they used to have a guy also that would play those kind of hippie shows. His name was Ivor Cutler. Do you know who he is? Oh, yes. John Peel used to love Ivor Cutler with his kind of... He's actually on the Magical Mystery Tour. He's on there as well, isn't he, Gerald Ivor? I don't know if he plays Mr. Kite or some character, but he would basically just sit there with a little, I don't know what it's called, a harmonium or something. Mm. Yeah, I know. He was like... Just kind of recite poetry to it or whatever. Life in a Scottish bed, bedroom or something like that. It was so great. He, he, he's like, yeah, he's like one of the kind of cla classic British eccentrics, really. You know. Well, I think there was that and Vivian Stanshaw with... Um, oh, yeah. He was another one of those classic kind of eccentrics. Yeah, they, had, they had I'm the Urban Spaceman, of course, they had a hit with. Yeah, but he did... Um, Sir Henry Rowlandson's End, didn't he? I don't know if you ever came across those albums, but when you're younger, you consume them with great enthusiasm because he was just kind of a lyrical, you know, like he just had such an amazing brain on him. So, um, well, Vivian. the thing is that Monty Python was going on at that time and, and Faulty Towers and that sort of thing. And so somehow it was connected. I think the guys from the Bonzo band uh, ended up like doing some things with them. I think they might have appeared in like the. What was their first, the, the one about the Knights, their first movie they did? 
Oh, yes. Um, What's that album called? The Holy Grail, is it? The Holy Grail, that's right. Um, yeah, I, th I think some of the Bonzo guys are in that. I would imagine so. Yes, they were they were classics. So, um, but then in America, you had a lot of kind of experimental performance theatre people, like the the Fire Sign Theatre Company and people like that. And so there was a lot of experimentation. And in, then in the late sixties and early seventies in San Francisco, there was a there was a troupe called the Coquettes who were quite over the top and way out. And then you had sort of Andy Warhol's gang in the factory in New York. So. Yes, it was just a creative time, which I'm sure there still is. But, um, you know, as you get older, it's harder to remember to find these things, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's harder for them to exist, to be honest, because uh, everything's about money. And so if you wanted to look, they have here, they have things like they call comedy clubs. When I was in, I lived in Chicago for 15 years and they have a club there. I forget what it's called now, but a lot of people who'd be famous today, like Adam Sandler and, and those kind of people, they used to appear, on, they eventually would appear on TV on Saturday Night Live, but they would have maybe got their start in the comedy club in Chicago. Um, but I've been there once or twice and there's hardly anybody there. And when it comes around to booking, obviously they book somebody that's going to bring the people in. Yes. And so if you're not going to bring in a crowd, then you're not going to get a booking. That's, that's the way it goes. Like just you know, use the internet. Why, why, do you, why do you have to come out to a club? And, and there are people, obviously, who have become big stars just from YouTube. So you don't absolutely have to go out and play somewhere to do anything at all. Um, def definitely for our age group, uh, the way things were seems more attractive than the way things are when it comes to creativity, whether you're talking about acting or comedy, whether you're talking about music, just the whole idea of Forming a band was really exciting back in the day, but today, you know, it's it's easy. Maybe you're going to be a DJ or a rapper. You know, I know a million people who they cannot sing, so they say they're rappers. And <laughs> but I think it's it kind is. of interesting that live circuit because you had the Beatles, you had the Cavern Club, and then they went to Hamburg, and there was you know so many other bands who would just have to spend years playing live to create that sound so that when they did get into the studio, they'd already worked out what songs worked, which songs didn't work, how to sort of, you know, basically improve their skill set. So, and you had that same experience as well, sort of playing the sort of around the little circuits, you know, you know, all those venues. And also you get to know if you want to do it or not, because obviously though it's glamorous when you're on stage, you still got to take the whole stuff down and then sort of take it home and get home at sort of four in the morning. You're thinking, yeah, it's quite hard work, isn't it, really? Well, you cannot have any other life. <laughs> and the second thing is the fans can be very, very strange. And so there's a whole kind of scene out there. It's been documented in movies like Play Misty for Me or Fatal Attraction, you know. There's, there's a lot of that that goes on, real weirdness. Even to this day, you know, there's... There's women from Paris and places that have been trying to pursue me for like 40 years. And <laughs> uh, they never give up. Uh, and so it's kind, of, it, it's kind of scary. You know, you can understand why some bigger stars become antisocial. Nick Bates told me one time he found out where Van Morrison lived, somewhere um, near Notting Hill or something. And he said he went and knocked on his door and Van Morrison came out wearing a vest and he says, who are you? What do you want? 
Oh, I'm just a fan. <laughs> Shut the door, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and actually, with John John Lennon, I don't know. What, I've seen it a few times. I don't know what movie it's in, but there's some movie where, when he was having his year or two off with Yoko, and some guys show up, they find it where he lives, and they show up there, and they're kind of saying he's God. Or were you thinking of me when you wrote that song? And he's like, Well, how could I have been thinking of you? I don't know you. <laughs> Yes, I know. Well, it's, it, it's, yeah, it must be very weird when you get that stalker show. Yeah, I, I often get messages saying, you know, do you have the lyrics to such and such a song from 40 years ago? Or, or what did you mean by it? I have no idea. I don't have the lyrics. I haven't sung the songs for, <laughs> you know, over 35 years. And I never think of them. No. And we didn't have computers back then anyway. So it's not like I could have saved them or anything. Um, yes, you'll so, scrap the paper. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, well, what are you thinking of? I mean, and even when I left England, you know, um, at some point, I, I, maybe it was Cherry Red or somebody like that, and they said to me, do you have any uh, videos of, of live concerts from back then? And I said, no, I threw them all away. I didn't think anybody would ever be interested in watching those. And so it, it, it is amazing when anything is preserved. But to yes. the artist, to the artists themselves, I cannot imagine that many of us really, uh, you know, kind of want to treasure and hoard our stuff from years and years ago any more than you would want your old clothes from when you were 20 years old, really. No, but um, yes. I mean, so is it the case then that your three albums with um, classics is all done on Cherry Red now? I think they're all re-released, yes, I believe so. And, and even some other ones, like there's some weird things out, out there, like... Um, there's a live album done in Edinburgh or, or Glasgow, maybe I think it's done in Glasgow. Um, somebody, I don't know if it's released as an album, but somebody has got a, an album of uh, BBC One sessions. Oh, that's right. I um, to, yeah, I don't know how they get these things, really. And then there's there's, this, there's three, and then there's the River Sessions, the BBC in concert, 82, and then there's also the Liberty recordings from 81 to 83, which is probably a collection of the other albums, actually. Well, it's I think what, what they did is when they realised they could make money out of repackaging all these things, they went over to Abbey Road and they dug out everything they could possibly find and then they put it all together on an album. That's what they do. Yes. Um, and oftentimes they'll, they'll get somebody who's a big fan and, uh, you know, he'll, he'll make his compilation and he'll write the sleeve notes or something. Or, or he'll make a compilation and they come to me to write sleeve notes and I look at it and I think, oh my goodness, isn't that awful, the stuff they've got on there. Like, how on earth would you choose that? <laughs> like, you know, they've, got, they've got obscure B-sides and instrumentals and things, you know? Yes. Uh, it's, it's just a fascinating culture, really. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. I'll, I'll, um, yes, uh, it's, I just noticed that you get 37,000 monthly listens as, as the band. So that's, that's very impressive, actually. There you go. <laughs> I'd, I'd prefer if they, they listen to the new stuff once we have that out, but probably they won't. But anyway, <laughs> well, they, I don't, I don't know if it will di differentiate, actually. So, um, I well, guess the, it... the video we the video we put out for our single this year, I, I think it's kind of close to about ten thousand hits on. Uh, oh, that's fantastic! 
too bad, you know. No, that's that's good. I mean, I'm sure the fans are going to be so excited knowing this new album's coming out. I think actually people like to hear something new, actually, to hear what people are, you know, the band are able to do again. So um, you never know. It could be a winner. It'll be interesting. We, we, think it's be- we think it's better than what we did before, but the fans obviously will think it's not as good as what we did before. But <laughs> there you go. Yes, yeah. it's a fickle um, world. Yeah, I was just going to ask you now, where, where does this thing actually go out? Uh, yeah, know? so what I'll do, I'll um, when I when I put it together, I can always send you the link and then you could, and I'll podcast it and archive it, and then you can always use the the interview else in, in other places that um, you might use, social media platform sites. What, is it on iTunes or something like that? Yeah, I'll, so I'll load it onto iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean, but it's it all kind of just merges into that same family of you know. Oh, um, very nice. What what do you do for a living, by the way? Well, um, I do this as a sort of a interesting sort of part time fun occupation, but I do work for the Norfolk County Council in my day job as well. Doing what? Yes, it's interesting. I work in the wellbeing and HR department which is a lot of admin, really, in reality, but um, it's kind of okay for the moment. Well, well-being sounds good. I've got a sister in Hertfordshire who gets lots of benefits, so you must be the kind of person that sorts her out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she, she loves it, you know, but uh, anyway, that's another story. Thank yeah. you. It was it was fun talking with you. And... Yeah, well, thank you ever so much. We'll have a lovely evening and um, afternoon. And, um, yes, take care, and um, thanks again for everything. This has been amazing. So um, I'll say goodbye now and off I'll go to bed. It's dark in Florida then. Oh, it's gone. There you go. (laughs) I know, how sweet. Anyway, look, yes, he was in Florida. I was in the UK. It was rock and roll. Anyway, a massive thank you to Sal Solo from Classics Nouveau, as well as all the interesting and amazing prolific um, solo work that he's done over the decades. This has been David East of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived and podcast. Aren't you lucky? So uh, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>